So today we got Dave Milston, Chief. Chief Dave Milston. Yeah, Chief retired. Dave on the Milston. podcast. If you guys haven't gone and listened to the Air Force History Museum's recording of his uh, kind of fight with Pittsburgher during the April 11th. Uh, 1966 mission that Pitts was awarded the Medal of Honor for. Um, you should go watch that. We don't really cover in too much detail what happened that day with them. No, but uh, they did a really good job with that uh, interview, so highly recommend you guys go check that out. I think we covered as much as possible. That being our first podcast, kind of had... I can only get better from here. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to him, he like mentioned that he was in an airplane crash, and we didn't even ask him about it. I'm like kicking uh, myself dang. a little bit on it, but yeah. definitely some fun highlights. Yeah. Wasn't necessarily all war stories. He definitely went into some of the funner moments, mm-hmm. um, some arrests, and uh, we had a good time. Um, thanks, special thanks to his daughter for getting him oh, set up. Yeah, she was the hero. Yeah, she set everything up for him, which was cool. Anyways, hope you guys enjoy. We now welcome to the podcast, Chief Master Sergeant Dave Milston. Chief joined the Air Force in 1957 as a Russian linguist. After that, he was a survival instructor for three years where he began skydiving. As his passion grew, he decided to become a PJ. As a PJ, Chief Milston served in Benoit, Vietnam. Notably, Chief Milston was saving lives alongside William Pitsenbarger on April 11, 1966, and was an integral part of recognizing Pitts for his heroic achievements. Dave rose the ranks and became Chief of Pararescue at Headquarters Air Rescue and Recovery Service. Welcome to the podcast, Chief. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to this old guy. <laughs> so it's our honor. Uh, so what drove you to join the Air Force and uh, what steps led you to becoming a PJ? Well, as far as the Air Force, uh, growing up in Southern Oregon, I was fascinated with the aviation and even as a Eight, nine-year-old, I'd hop my bike and go out to Little Airport and watch the puddle jumpers take off and land. And so I wanted to fly. And uh, later on in high school, I joined Civil Air Patrol, got involved in that, went to a couple encampments. And so I enlisted as soon as I graduated from high school in 57. Uh, my dad passed away when I was 12, and I had uh, uh, two other brothers and a sister. And uh, things are kind of tight, so college was out of the question but the Air Force opened the door for me right away. And uh, at basic training, I was selected for Russian language school. And uh, while I was going through basic training, I noticed a display of other career fields that uh, didn't normally recruit normal ways. And one was a survival equipment display. And I walked over and started talking to the two guys who were survival instructors and they were recruiting for the survival field. And uh, I grew up in Southern Oregon in the mountains, did a lot of hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, spend all my free moments outdoors. And uh, so I took their test and interview and everything and got selected as a survival instructor. So I left uh, Lackland and went right to State Air Force Base in Reno in uh, November 1957 and began my seven-month survival instructor course and uh, completed uh, the seven-month course and I carried a pack for three years teaching combat survival up in the mountains of the Sierra Nevada. And uh, then I got jerked out of field instructor duty and, and became a uh, instructor and tear gator in the prisoner of war camp. And I spent two years doing that. But way back in about 1960, while I was still trekking, 
Don Edwards, one of our survival instructors, was uh, skydiving PCA B-48, one of the pioneers of skydiving. And he talked me into starting skydiving with him. So uh, I started jumping and loved it. And uh, by the time I got about 160 jumps, the Paris Air Career Field was starting to recruit for uh, the space program. And uh, so I volunteered for pararescue and got yanked right out of survival. And at the time, uh, pararescue was on the downhill slope. Uh, they have been downsizing ever since Korea. And uh, right about this time, there are probably somewhere around 60 to 65 pararescue men worldwide. And uh, they realized that they're going to have to get a whole bunch more pararescue for the space program, Mercury program at this time. And being a survival instructor, survival and pararescue are very closely related. In fact, uh, early PJ teams are nothing but survival instructors. And the survival instructors that had been airborne during World War II became the PJs, whereas the regular land survival instructors became the ground rescue crews. So all the early PJs were really survival instructors. And it still carried on when I was in survival because we had the same AFSC. And a lot of my instructors at survival school were old-time PJs. And I noticed these guys like, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of some of the names. Uh, mine went blank for a moment. Uh, Henry Urban, quite a few other ones. I noticed they kind of walked around with a swagger. And they looked like they were on top of the world. And I said, you know, I'd like to be like those guys. And uh, about this time, uh, they made me the instructor teaching survival students how to parachute jump. And I thought that was weird because I'd never jumped. And here I am up on the platform trying to show them how to go through the basics of parachuting for emergency ejection. And that's when I started skydiving with Don Edwards. But uh, by the time I applied for uh, pararescue, I had 160 jumps, a little more than that. And I already had the rescue and survival medical course. PJs and survival instructors went through the same medical school, a four-week course at Gunner. It was a real impressive course. We dissected dead cats. I mean, that's really impressive as far as medical training goes. So I didn't learn a whole lot at medical school. We weren't really well-qualified medics, the early PJs. And uh, I had survival behind me. I had five years of that, so I didn't have to go through survival school. And there was no pararescue school. We were all cross-trainees in the pararescue at that time. They were taking applicants uh, from mainly the medical fields and survival field. And uh, they sent me a jump school in October of uh, 62, which is kind of a blast since I already had the 160 jumps. And then they sent me down to scuba school. And really, scuba school is the only unique training I got before I went right active on the teams in Guam. And we had so few PJs that when I got to Guam, it was a fixed-wing squadron. We had three PJs there. I was the fourth. And uh, the other teams were all about the same thing. And uh, we started, we got two more cross trainees in and made six of us. And, and then uh, they started Project Operation Webfoot, the first PJ class in 1963. That was when Pittsburgh had belonged to. And we got uh, three PJs out of that school, one being Neil Black or Art Black, as I know him, the PJ that got captured and spent seven or eight years in POW camp. Uh, Neil was the longest held American prisoner enlisted man in the history of the United States as far as being a POW. But uh, 
by that time we had seven or eight PJs on Guam and that was our team. And uh, after a year and a half in Guam, they sent me to Patrick and uh, I was sent there to cover the Gemini program. And I got to Patrick and there's only one PJ there, Huey Lucas, an old time uh, survival circuit PJ. And so Huey, Lacasse and I were the only two PJs at uh, Patrick, and they use us as team leaders to bring other teams in, and we'd be the team leader for the Gemini program. And we've got a couple more cross trainees in at uh, Patrick and got the four or five guys, but we were the first team at Patrick way back in 1964 and 65. And uh, the Vietnam War was starting up. Rescue wasn't invited to start with. The Army was trying to do the rescue recoveries using ropes, and that didn't work out too well. So they brought the first PGA teams over to Vietnam in 1964. We had four teams, five-man teams, flying the HH-43 Pedros. And we had teams at uh, Benoit, Da Nang, Udorn, and Nakhon Phanon, Thailand. And that was our rescue coverage in 64. Uh, and when I got there in 65, we had the same four teams. So I got to Benoit in uh, probably uh, – early October, 1965. Bill Pittsburgh was already there, had two of the staff sergeants there, but right after I got there, they pulled both of the staffs out to start new teams elsewhere in Vietnam. So I ended up with uh, the young guys. <clears throat> and uh, Dave. Yes, go ahead. I got a question for you. Just before we get okay. into uh, Vietnam and Pitts, uh, we want to talk a little bit more about the selection and uh, like what, what was involved um, with selecting guys to become uh, pararescuemen at the time. And obviously okay, in my case, had uh, right. like a little bit of medical treatment or medical training. You went to jump school uh, and dive, but was there a, a, like a selection course initially? And what was that like? No, nope. nope. no, it was strictly application headquarters uh, went through the applications and uh, grabbed the guys that are interesting and they must've had a high priority because they got anybody they wanted. I know the uh, four or five of us from survival applied at the same time. I was the first one to go, but uh, survival fought like mad because, you know, they had a lot of training invested in us mm -hmm. and they didn't want to release us to the Paris mm -hmm. career field, but uh, they had such a high priority for the space program that uh, I just got yanked right out of survival. And uh, they sent me to jump school. I spent three weeks there and went back to survival for another two months. And okay. then, uh, they pulled me out of interrogating again and sent me to uh, dive school at Key West. That was in January of 63. And I went right from Key West overseas to uh, Guam. And that was my training. There was no pararescue school of any type, but they, they started that school when I was at dive school, as far as getting the concept going for project Webfoot, they called it, I believe. Try so to get new PJs into the pipeline. What do you think about how the pipelines expanded? We obviously had an in-doc <laughs> and now it's changed to new assessment and selection. What do you, what do you guys think about that? Well, uh, I know when they started uh, the PJ school, it was very short course before they send them off through the pipelines, uh, jump school. And we had just a terrific washout rate at scuba school in particular. I think we're running 70%, 80% washouts. And that's when they really started the oil J program to put the guys through a pre-conditioning course before going to jump school and dive school, particularly dive school. And uh, in my case, you know, I went uh, no 
background training whatsoever. They just sent us right to dive school. And it was kind of a rough road to hold, but uh, I don't think too many of us washed out. And my uh, prior service guys that went through, but uh, the retention rate increased uh, up to about 90% once they started the OLJ. And I know the OLJ started out uh, this being about four weeks or so, but then it kept getting longer. And I think that the brief selection course is great. I don't know. I kind of lost touch with what's going on now. I heard a lot of rumors about combining everybody together, putting them all through the same pre-training. But I kind of liked that when we had our own PJ pre-course and then combat control got in with this and mm-hmm. started putting guys through the same course. And that worked out fairly well. But there's a lot of resentment between the old-time PJs and the combat controllers because they kind of thought that the combat controllers might be trying to take over pararescue, especially the way Later on, the special ops fight went with special ops and rescue. And uh, I got right in the middle of that uh, later on, but I'm getting way ahead of myself here. (laughs) I had a quick question about uh, dive school specifically. So throughout the evolution of uh, the selections and dive school and specifically water confidence, um, there's been a lot of, uh, there's been times or, or in the past where it was almost kind of just a cowboy rules and there wasn't really any oversight or I guess rules in terms of uh, how to harass or um, put stress on the, the, the trainees. Did you feel that at all? Like, were there, were there times where you're like, is anyone actually watching because someone might actually drown right now? Yeah. I always had concerns. You'd have to talk to guys that are no longer with us, like Cleegie Chambers, who just passed away, and T.J. Bruce, who just passed away. But probably the only other guy that could handle that is Tom Newman. He spent many years, uh, and Greg Lowry at the OLJ. I always felt that they were just being a little too hard on the guys on the crossovers and the drowning proofing. And because you know, I went through scuba school and went through that and you know, made it. I was harassed a little bit of scuba school and everything, but I know our guys went through a whole lot more water turning and harassment and ground proofing at the OLJs in my time. By the time they got to scuba school, it was a picnic. We did have a couple of casualties. Uh, I know when I become chief of pararescue, one of my big objectives was to get an officer program started. And I got my first recruit in 1984. Three, I think. Uh, Captain Lux was an Air Force Academy graduate, a jumper, been through the academy course, and I sent him down to be a PJ, and he had a heart attack down at scuba school. And so I lost my first candidate to start the Perusky Officer Program. And then that obviously was delayed considerably because Crows. <laughs> yes, it was. Until <laughs> 2000, well, 2001, finally, it was them going through the pipeline. Well, probably one of the bigger problems with that is nobody knew what direction pararescue is going, let alone get officers in pararescue. So we didn't have our mission defined. I mean, we were going from the Cold War situation, dropping six-man teams in behind Russian lines, moving them to us after picking up a survivor, moving them to a pickup point. We're going through scenarios like that. Nobody had any idea of the pre-show pararescue. And this is well before the... uh, Gulf War started, Afghanistan started. So it's real turbulent times in the late 80s. What was your uh, your motivation, I guess, uh, when you're in that leadership role to bring crows or officers into the career field? <laughs> well, 
things are really turbulent for pararescue. I mean, we had about four or five major things stacking up against us. Uh, one was that every time we were air crew members, we're assigned against the air crews. Mm-hmm. And every time we lost an airframe, we're, we're sending airframes to, to uh, special ops for their purposes, we'd lose PJ positions. And every time we lost PJ positions, the special ops folks would grab them up and turn them into gunners. And then we closed down our H1 detachments, five of them, 20 PJs in a row. This is in 84, 85. And we lost all 20 of those slots. And they all converted to gunners for special ops. Special ops did not want PJs. They wanted gunners. And they thought they could do the rescue mission just as well as rescue could. And uh, this is history way back when, though. But there was a real conflict going between rescue and special ops. And I know it continued on over the years. Different I aspects. Don't think it's changed, Dave. <laughs> the the <fight laughs> is still pretty healthy. Yeah. So. Okay, but uh, now, it was so real bad then. Yeah, special go. ops said they could do the rescue mission without us, and <laughs> that proved be really at fault during the Gulf Wars because special ops was tasked by other folks, and rescue wasn't their priority, and that put rescue back in again. That's um, my view of it. I'm sure history is a little different than what I thought it was. Well, we're happy to have your opinion. That's why that's why we're on. Um, uh, one point about officers, but there are several others. Uh, all of our helicopter detachments were trying to make mini PJs instead of they wanted mini PJs and, and not jumping PJs because they didn't see any sense at jumping PJs out of the helicopters. So they're trying to start a mini PJ program to start with the helicopters. And then after two there, they become pararescues. So I fought that. The other fights we had going were uh, the mission roles, and I didn't have any officers just to help me on that. Mm-hmm. I had some of the staff members at headquarters working, especially Colonel Corper and Colonel Dutton, but they had other responsibilities too. So as chief of pararescue, I'd be going to meetings with SEALs and with uh, special forces on mission, or exercises, and they say, where's your, where's your officers, chief? Well, we don't have any officers. Well, that kind of cut us down to really have a hard time coordinating and Rescue didn't really want us coordinating with them anyway because they're afraid that they start using PJs separate from rescue. And so another battle is going on there. But anyway, I'm sorry to carry on like that. Go ahead. No, don't, don't apologize at all. We're, we're absolutely loving what you're uh, pushing out to us right now. Um, my next question was more or less about you and your brother's reunion in Vietnam. We got up to that point, uh, and for people listening who haven't watched the video that you had for the Air Force uh, History Museum, basically your brother and you were separated uh, when you were 12 years old. He was adopted by another I family. And, yeah, I was 12 and Dan was 10, but go ahead. And, and you guys met up in Vietnam because you are both at Benoit at the same time. You want to talk about that reunion and kind of if you supported his operations uh, off and on while you were a PJ there and he was in the Army. Uh, yeah, uh, Dan and I separated when he was 10 and I was 12. You know, mom had four kids. My dad had passed away and she was going to night school trying to work and work in the daytime. Us kids had to run into town. We were kind of wild ones. But Dan was adopted out of our family by some friends of ours who was a minister. And uh, Dan moved with them to Dunning, Nebraska, Little Town, Nebraska. And we had no c- contact during those years he was in Nebraska. And uh, he came out to visit me after he graduated from high school when I was a survival instructor. So that's the first time we've been together for a long time. And uh, kind of funny story, but Dan uh, 
come out to watch me skydive. And uh, we're out the drop. So I said, Dan, do you want to jump? And Dan said, well, yeah. I said, okay, here's a parachute. Put him on him. Show him, it was, told him a static line, hooked the reserve of him. said, if the static line don't open, pull this reserve handle. Show him how to do a PLF and we got airborne. That was a five-minute training. We had never gone to uh, back of those days. He had never gone and to so airborne. So we got school. that. Oh, sorry, he, what's that? He had never gone to airborne school, huh? Oh, he was a civilian. He wasn't even in the army yet. He just graduated oh. from high school. <laughs> okay. And so we're, we're we're climbing up the altitude in the Cessna, and Dan is wiggling around inside the airplane, looking out the window, and it suddenly occurred to me. I said, Dan. Have you ever been in an airplane before? He said, no. <laughs> so we get up to altitude and uh, come over target. And I said, okay, Dan, climb out. And he climbed out of the Cessna and he's standing out there holding on to strut and looking wild-eyed for some reason or another. I said, go. Well, he jumped, but he didn't let loose. So he's flying along formation with the airplane, hang on to the strut. And I pried his fingers loose and uh, he jumped. That's <laughs> but, amazing. Uh, <laughs> he, he landed about a mile away from Target over in the main airport and he slammed into a hangar. He wasn't hurt, but man, he come back mad at a wet hen and he wanted to <laughs> know why I misspotted him so bad. Well, he had blacked out and had no <laughs> recollection. But uh, Dan did uh, go to airborne school. He went to the one Stanford Airborne in Okinawa. He was sent over with the team to Benoit as the first Army major unit to be stationed in Vietnam. And probably May of 1965. And then I got my orders for Benoit in October, August. And uh, I got over there. And the first day I hopped on a Jeep to go over to the Army side and the other side of the runway. And I asked for Dan's unit. And they said they're in that squad tent over there. So I went over and walked in. And here's a big squad tent, uh, canvas cots, hot. Dan was laying on a cot. He's the only guy in the tent with his mouth hanging open, flies crawling on his face, sound asleep. He'd been out on a three-day long-range recon patrol, and he just come in. So I walked over to his cot, and I said, Dan, he opened his eyes, looked at me, and said, what in the hell are you doing here? And that was our introduction to Vietnam. We spent six months together. Uh, Dan spent a lot of his time over on our side because we had a, a alert trailer that was air-conditioned. And he'd come over and play Pinochle with Pittsburgh and myself. And he was Pittsburgh's Pinochle partner. And as far as missions go, Dan spent half his time out in the jungle. On three different occasions, I'd go out on mission and uh, go down the hoist, and Dan would come running out of the jungle. It was his unit we're working with. Mm. But uh, So we met out there three different times on missions. Uh, he, every time he saw our helicopters, he knew there was uh, probably one chance or two. One chance and two, I'd be aboard one of the two helicopters. Uh, Dan uh, spent his year in Vietnam and went back. And uh, he uh, joined the 8th Army Parachute Team and then went on the Golden Knights. He ended up with about 5,000, 6,000 parachute jumps. So that first jump was uh, hooked him. <laughs> <laughs> Dan has a famous daughter. If you ever heard Tiffany sing, the redhead singer from Nashville, that's his daughter. Okay. So, so Tiffany's my niece. But, uh, Dan's passed away now. He died from multiple cancers from Agent Orange, I'm sure. Okay. Um, so it, you talked about just kind of a couple of highlights of Benoit. What was the day-to-day -day like in Vietnam? Well, we were a small team. Uh, we had three HH-43 helicopters. We had first alert, second alert, and third alerts. So that meant three out of five PJs were always on alert of one type or another. And usually one of the PJs was gone. 
you know, either R and R or Saigon or or the uh, Army Hospital get medical training. We had the Mash Hospital at Benoit. I, I we had five crews. Uh, a PJ was assigned. Each crew had their own PJ. I was a headquarters crew with a with the commander, the ops officer, myself. But I ended up flying more of my guys because I was all filling with somebody. So I flew with all the crews, whereas they had their own crew most of the time. And uh, our alert days were spent down at the trailer, down on the flight line, and uh, basically just working uh, on equipment, uh, litters, stuff like that, playing pinochle, killing time. We couldn't do any training away from the trailer because the first and second alert crews are right there, ready to scramble. Uh, the first alert crew had the firefighting duties. We, we, the PJs and the, oh, sorry, the flight mechanic were the firefighters for on-base calls. And we'd get four or five crash res- rescues a day where we'd have to throw in our silver bunker scramble. And uh, the, the second alert crew backed us up when we were airborne or for any off-base mission, we also took two of the three helicopters. So we had a high bird and a little bird. So two out of our five PJs were airborne every time we went off base. With the five guys, or usually four guys, we didn't have a whole lot of time to do too much else. The town of Benoit was off limits. It wasn't like being over in Thailand where you went off base every night. We stayed right on base. Uh, for diversion, we'd go to Saigon. They had a shuttle bus that would run on Saigon. I remember my first trip to Saigon, they had uh, wire mesh over all the windows. I said, what is that for? And that was to stop hand grenades from coming in because it was about a 20-mile trip down to Saigon in the highway. They kept getting ambushed and stuff. But we go to Saigon, and the big day was going to the BX and uh, go back to Benoit. Any shenanigans? For entertainment, Saigon. we didn't have much. We had the NCO club, which we couldn't drink because we're on first, second, or third alert. I think Andrew brought up a pretty good point that – we're trying to get all sides of you guys' time in Vietnam. Were there any shenanigans in uh, Saigon when you went down to the BX? No, we had a few amusing incidents. Uh, I sent Harry O'Byrne, who was Pittsburgh's best friend, down to Saigon one time. We're out of body bags. And Harry was doing a lot of work over at the MASH hospital. He got in with the nurses. He helped them build showers out of old tanks and stuff. But they were doing operating uh, procedures on canvas cots. So Harry, when he went down to get body bags, also I told him, look, see what you find for uh, hospital gear. So he went down there. You couldn't find any body bags except for at the morgue. So he brought back uh, 20 body bags from the morgue, but he did find in a warehouse two operating tables. So he'd come back with the operating tables, and that made him heroes for the uh, nurses at the, the MASH hospital, which is like MASH on TV, that hospital tents and everything. And the body bags, and then, you know, I didn't realize it, but they were really ripe. Mm. So I spread them out in the sun, thinking the sun would cure them so we could use them in the helicopter. And unfortunately, we had an Army chow hall across the street. And uh, the Army chow hall started getting this real bad stench over there. So they closed the chow hall and they spent three days tearing it apart, trying to find out what was smelling so bad until they traced the smell across the street to me <laughs> and my body bags hanging out there in the sun. So we uh, disposed of them and finally got some new ones. Another incident with Harry was uh, he noticed a truck with a whole bunch of cots in front of uh, Vietnamese drivers, six by with about 20 or 30 steel cots with mattresses and everything parked in front of the air police barracks. So he walked over to the driver and Harry uh, 
kind of broken English, asked the driver, uh, what are they for? And he, the Vietnamese driver said, these are for the MPs. And Harry said, no, no, you got the wrong address. You're supposed to be over at the Army MASH hospital. So he went with the driver over to the Army MASH hospital and loaded all 30 steel cots for the hospital. And I think the Air Police never did figure out what was happening or what happened to their cots. But uh, we, we were doing stuff like that all the time. Yeah. Harry uh, didn't speak a word of Vietnamese, but at the club, uh, he could go, wave his arms at the, <laughs> at the, at the uh, yeah, waitresses and maids and everything, and uh, they'd go right back at him. And all these Army guys and the rest of the Air Force guys thought Harry spoke beautiful Vietnamese. <laughs> well, he didn't speak a word of it, but uh, they, they played like he did. All, all the, the you know, waitresses knew Harry, and they knew what he was doing, and it sounded just like they're Beating me's language. He had all the inflections and everything just right. That's funny. <laughs> Didn't understand a word of it, but he had everybody impressed. There, there's one story I could tell you, you know, on the humor side, somewhat. Uh, PJs, you know, they're kind of wild and adventuresome, and a lot of them are constantly getting in trouble. I know it's NCOIC of teams. My biggest problem is always getting guys out of trouble somewhat. I mean, we got all this build up energy and we're not using it on jumping our missions. We got to use it somewhere. But over in the Philippines, I had about a 20 man team and uh, I was living off base the first year. And uh, we had a PJ club downtown, one of the bars called the House of Bamboo. And I made a habit of going home every night. I drive them pretty close to I stopped by just to check, make sure the PJs are okay there because they all hung out, out at the House of Bamboo. And uh, one night I got a call about probably about one o'clock in the morning from the owner's son, boy. He said, Sergeant Dave, Sergeant Dave, big problem. I said, what's, what's the matter, boy? And he said, Stanley Jones in big trouble. I said, what's the matter, boy? He said, come down to police station downtown quick. Well, I threw my blues on and whatever I was wearing at the time and drove 10 minutes downtown and as I drove up the police station, the PD, P, uh, P, PC constables, they were the state police of Vietnam or Philippines. Stamey is tied handcuffed to the back of a PC Jeep outside. And I say, well, Stamey, how's it going? He said, pretty good, Sarge, pretty good, Sarge. I said, don't go anywhere, Stamey. He said, okay, Sarge, and he's handcuffed to the Jeep. So I walk in and there's two rooms. One is the air police and the other is the PC. So I walk in the air police side and I walk up to the staff sergeant and I know I'm in big trouble because he's got four scratch marks down the side of his face. And I said, hey, Sarge, what's going on? He said, that guy out there? I said, yeah. He said he was in the house of bamboo and he picked a fight with uh, two of the local policemen. I said, well, yeah. He said, and they had four PC come in to help and he took on all six of them. And he's winning for quite a while, but finally they got the best of them. And that's him out there now. And I said, well, you know what? What are they going to do with him? He said, they're taking down the Manila jail prison. I said, well, okay, uh, we got a big problem. And they said, what's that? I said, well, you know, they're having a base parade tomorrow. Yeah. It's for a guy that's getting a silver star from uh, Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> that's him. <laughs> wow. So... The uh, air, air policeman thought about it. He said, just a minute. He went over and talked to the PCs, told them that this is a war hero out there, and uh, he's having uh, problems from combat and everything, and they understood. 
And I said, I tell you what, if you release me, I'll guarantee he won't leave base for two months after that parade. And they gave him back to me. And so I took him back to base and got him cleaned up and uh, typical young PJ full of vinegar yeah. and everything else. And the parade went quite well. And uh, about two years ago, I got a phone call. And uh, Chief Nelson, yeah, this is uh, Joan Stamey. Yeah, I'm in jail. Can you come get me out? Well, he was kidding, of course. But <laughs> <laughs> So everyone obviously knows Pitts and Bogger's story. Uh, but for like the younger generation and uh, all the PJs out there, can you just kind of paint a picture of who he was on the day-to-day and just like his personality? And uh, do you have like any, any stories about Pitts outside of uh, – Obviously, the, the the story we all know. No, I got there in late October. Uh, Bill was killed in April. Uh, Bill was uh, probably the guy you'd want on your team as far as young PJs. He'd already had uh, spent one tour at Hamilton with the rescue squad in there. I guess you heard the bear stories and stuff like that. Uh, he was hard to explain he uh was a great pj he was full of life always clowning around never a dull moment with uh, bill he and harry were great friends uh on a mission you knew you could trust him and have confidence in what he was doing like all my guys were that way uh, were you the senior he, uh, when you're out there in vietnam I was a senior guy as a staff sergeant. I had two of the staff sergeants, but they shipped both of them out after a month to start new teams at Pleiku and Ventui. That was Lenny Fold and George Shipper. So I was back down to my airman first and airman seconds. I did have Harry O'Byrne, uh, who had been in Paris as long as I had there. So we were a five-man team or four-man team, depending. I had George Thayer. George uh, never made chief of pair rescue, but George was the Indian from Northwestern Wisconsin and he made tribal chief up in Wisconsin. Uh, you'd probably like to talk to him. He's a silver star. Earner. He, he, after I left, uh, George was in a helicopter crash at Benoit where they got shot down and uh, crashed up in the hills someplace. And he got a rotor blade through the side of his face. But uh, George is a real interesting character, but uh, Harry, I mean, uh, Pitts, he and I played handball, and he was a tormentor. He tormented me in the handball court so bad that he wore holes in the bottom of my tennis shoes, and I had to take cardboard and put it in the bottom of them. I still got feet problems today from playing handball with Harry because we had concrete floors on the handball court. We couldn't get new sneakers. But uh, he was gun-ho. He was always ready for the mission. He scared the ops officer pretty bad, as all of us did. And the ops officer... Uh, I won't mention his name, but uh, later on, I ran across him in one of the showings for the Pittsburgh movie, and I said, sir, what did you have against the PJs at Benoit? And he said, you guys are so gun ho I thought you were going to get me killed. Well, a couple of our pilots are real gun ho and I'd rather fly with the gun ho ones than the ones that are afraid of us going to get them killed. Amen. But, uh, me too. <laughs> um, we, we, <laughs> you, you touched on Pitts a lot, and, and uh, you being the senior guy, um, how did you guys support each other after losing him? And what advice do you have for our generations and future generations of PJs and their families if they do lose a loved one? Uh, that, that's a hard one because we all handle casualties or losing our teammates in different ways. I know later teams, I've lost guys too in crashes and stuff. 
But in Bill's case, we're all kind of shocked because we all thought we were invincible. And all of a sudden, we found out we weren't quite so invincible. And we did a lot of second guessing on that mission as far as what what ifs, could, what could have been. Uh, I made some decisions on that, that mission that uh, I have second guessed. But as far as, uh, I guess, y- 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 most of us handle it privately. It wasn't much we do. We, you know, I had a drink for Harry and I mean for Bill and stuff like that. Uh, Harry was in close contact with Bill's folks. In fact, uh, since Bill was the only child, Bill's parents kind of adopted uh, Harry's kids. And they spent years together fishing and stuff like that. So they stayed real close. But I guess any sports you can give the families would be great. Mm-hmm. I know I, I lost a PGA in one of the teams and I sent this letter to his wife saying how great he was and what a great PJ. And then they found out they were getting divorced. So, you know, sometimes you lose out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you just don't know, but we really appreciate you sharing that. I don't know. I was like, uh, it's hard to have these, uh, those stories and, or ask some things of you because um, they're touchy subjects, yeah. but we appreciate you shedding well, light on that. Definitely valuable. We all know we're in a risky yeah. job, and I come so close to death so many times that I won't want to count them. I mean, I've been taken off an airplane, they took off and then crashed, stuff like that. But uh, I guess we accept casualties or loss of our teammates as part of what we do. Mm-hmm. You guys are even much more living dangerously than we live. So uh, maybe to lighten up the mood a little bit. Um... <laughs> So for me, there's been there's been multiple times in my uh, PJ career where I thought like there's not a better job out there. Um, and some guys say like this is the best job in the world. It, like all the guys that are like soon to retire. Um, for you, are there any moments in your career where you're like there's nothing better out there, and I, I feel like blessed to be a PJ? Well, as a survival instructor, I thought I had the best job in the world. And uh, as I got into pararescue, coming in better. As far as I can concerned, I was on a paid vacation my whole 25 years in pararescue. I mean, where else can you get paid for skydiving and scuba diving and mountain climbing and everything else we did? I enjoyed every minute of it. I mean, there was never a time when I felt bad about being a PJ. I had the best job in the world. And uh, I thought that the whole time through pararescue, even though I had a few disagreements with some of my staff members, but it was the best job that I could ever possibly have. It's even affect me nowadays because uh, I operate an agriculture farm. Been doing it for about 25, 26 years. I spend two or three days out in the ocean and uh, do a lot of most of my work is holding my breath. I'll go down, I'll take a deep breath, go down to the bottom, work on the bottom, come back up, and I'll do it for two or three hours. Nice. Uh, You're I actually did bottom. an underwater like two days ago, and that was miserable for me. Ah. I need to get back into it. <laughs> was that right? Diving, you mean? Oh uh, yeah, we're just in the pool, just going from one side to the other. Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad I didn't have to go through that. I might not have made it. But uh, doctor says my lungs are twice normal capacity from all go. my uh, underwater stuff I do. I do use tanks occasionally, but most of my stuff is just holding my breath at lower tides. You know, four or five foot tides. I go down and work the bottom, come take a breath, go back down, come up and do that for two or three hours straight. So you want to shed light on what you do now? And uh, I'm a clam farmer. Clam farmer. So what is that clam like? I'm an agriculture farm out in the Gulf of Mexico. I, I, I raise clams in uh, net bags, and I have a 
leases from the state that I lease each year. It's, it's about three miles offshore from Cedar Key, Florida, and these are all uh, mud flat type thing. It, uh, I have two acre leases. I grow my clams in four foot by four foot net bags. I put I buy my baby clams. I call them the size of seed. Put them down. Uh, leave them down for about three months. I got to bring them back up and uh, rebag them into bigger bags. Otherwise, they small smother in the small mesh bags. Leave them down for about a year to year and a half. And uh, I market every every week. I have a wholesale right there. Cedar Key. I sell to. I sell about anywhere from 10 to 20 bushels a week of the clams. How did you it's, get into uh, that? Oh, uh, I had a relative that uh, was running a hardware store in Cedar Key. And uh, way back 25 years ago, Florida had a net ban where they put all commercial fishermen out of business. So they started, the Florida did the idea of raising clams and they took a lot of these out-of-work fishermen and uh, taught them how to clam farm. And my relative was one of these that were learning how to clam farm. And I went and started helping them. And a year later, I went full-time, got my own leases. And right now, my son and I are uh, working over there. We spend three or four days a week on the clam farm. And uh, my, my son is... Where uh, your clams, Dave? Pardon? So where can I get some of your clams? <laughs> they, we actually market them in uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, Las Vegas, uh, all over the United States. Uh, we could throw them on, uh, throw them on some ice and get them uh, out of Tucson. <laughs> Probably, I don't know. Right. <laughs> What's your company called? Uh, Pelican Reef Clams Incorporated. Okay, we'll have to look and, it up. Yeah. Yeah, my son was an Army Blackhawk pilot. Uh, he had uh, forty-one months in combat versus my one tour. He had four, uh, three tours, two thirty-month tours, and one fifty-month tour flying Blackhawks in Afghanistan and Iraq, and he was going right back again. So uh, he got out and he's a full-time, he's my field manager for my clam farm. Gotcha. <clears throat> when Green Feet Tattoos started in Thailand, how long did it take for it to catch on for you guys out in Benoit? Did you get your tattoos in Vietnam? Or did you no, we didn't, know, we didn't know about it until years later. Uh, it was a kind of a Thailand thing and it didn't reach the Benoit that I know of. None of my guys had tattoos over there at the time. And it was later on to become a thing. Uh, of course, Wayne Fisk can give you the whole story of that since he's the instigator of the whole thing. Kind of amusing thing. Uh, I ran across a young PJ in my time. that's now an airline pilot, Craig Bartlett. I, I run a uh, repelling tower for Army Air, Air Force ROTC at Emory Riddle in uh, University of Central Florida. And one of the guys that I put through training was get, graduating, he would become a crow. So I went down for his, this was about five years ago, I went down for his retirement and I put my Air Force uniform on. And afterwards, my son and I, who teaches school down there, went to Ruby Tuesday. We walked in, my son, oh my goodness, there was Craig Bartlett, the young PJ I knew way back in 76, 77. And uh, I was sitting in my Air Force uniform and Craig thought it was Twilight Zone because this is 25 years after he retired. Here I am in my blues. And uh, I said, Craig, are you a PJ? He said, yeah. I said, prove it to me. And right in Ruby Tuesday, he started lowering his pants. And it panicked his family and my family. And <laughs> anyway, I guess the green feet story still go on. Yep. It's still a tradition. If someone calls you out and asks you to see their green feet, it's got to be done. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Same as a coin, huh? 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, we got another tradition, uh, fights surrounding the absconding of Charlie, and you are pretty infamously involved with one of them. You want to explain that story to us? Well, Charlie, the PJ doll, ever since uh, he first showed up, has been a real PJ mascot. But Charlie disappeared for quite a few years, probably seven, eight, ten years. And uh, in 19, probably 84, all of a sudden, Charlie magically appeared again. So we decided we're going to relist him in the pararescue. And I was at a, a PJ um, reunion down at Eglin. And same time, we had a SARX, which is the old exercise that we used to have with the Canadians. And uh, so every uh, year, we had a SARX, jump competition, medical competition, stuff like that. So at the banquet for the PJ convention, General Mall was guest speaker. And Charlie was showed up and was up at the head table. Uh, and uh, the idea was that General Mall was going to take Charlie back to Scott and we're going to re-enlist uh, him and then send him to the PJ school for retraining. Well, right in the middle of General Mall's speech, all the lights went out. And I knew exactly what was going on. Now, I was sitting fairly close to the, to the General Mall and the table where Charlie was. So I jumped out of my chair and ran about 15 feet to the table, grabbed Charlie. I was going to try to get back in my seat and hide Charlie, but it's too late because the herd hit the table. So I dove underneath it with Charlie in my arms. There was about a, probably about a 10 minute fight going on. And finally, the lights come on. There's about 40 PJs standing there bewildered because they couldn't find Charlie anywhere. I was under the table holding Charlie in my arms. And they couldn't really grab Charlie away from me right in front of everybody. So they went back to their seats and I took Charlie to my seat. And just then, General Mall said, Milston, if you value being chief at pararescue any longer, you will see to it that Charlie gets my airplane in the morning. Well, I took that as an order. So I, instead of sitting down, I walked to the back of the banquet hall and walked out the door. Had a young PG open the door for me by the name of Wayne Walls. And uh, instead of opening the door for me, he grabbed Charlie and took off down the stairs. So General Mall giving us, continuing with his speech, and here's Wayne Wall running down the stairs of this convention center, holding Charlie in his arms. So I started chasing them. I chased them out of the building, chased them across the street at Fort Walton Beach, through a couple of motel parking lots and swimming pools. In fact, one place I heard people screaming, they're calling the cops on us because they, they thought I was ready to kill them. <laughs> and after about a 15-minute chase, I tackled them. And uh, he skidded underneath a parked car, fortunately for me, and Charlie got stuck outside. So I grabbed Charlie and took off again. And by the time Wayne could get out from that parked car, I was gone. So I secured Charlie for the night. I didn't make it back to the uh, speech, so I missed out General Mall's speech, and he was talking about all the neat things that are happening in the future of pararescue. And I felt kind of bad about missing out on that because I want to hear some of it myself on, <laughs> on what was going to happen to us because we were at real turbulent time then. The next morning, uh, I took Charlie down to the air police station and requested an armed escort to General Mall's rear jet. And uh, I got my escort, so we marched up the jet with Charlie, and I handed Charlie to General Mall. General Mall turned to the senior list advisor and said, is there any danger or chance of the PGs hiking us, or hijacking us on the way back to Scott? He was serious about it. He thought we were that serious about Charlie. <laughs> but we got Charlie back to headquarters. He was re-enlisted. He was sent out to uh, Kirtland. He was retrained. And then the fun started all over again. What year was that? That was, uh, I believe, uh, 84. 85. It's funny because uh, just last year, 2021, 
um, during the PGA rodeo, I swear we have like an identical story with Charlie. <laughs> our unit has Charlie right now. So, yeah, we were trying well, to get right? lights in that uh, conference room as well, but the lights didn't come on. The backup generator kicked in before they all shut off. Oh, okay. Yeah, ours went dead. It was black. And I was lucky I didn't find Charlie in that table. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, we really appreciate your, your time, uh, chief. Um, we, we really wanted to just go over kind of your legacy and your, uh, impact on the career field. Is there anything that you've done that you think, um, has cemented your legacy for pararescue, uh, in your career? Yeah, you guys, especially the crow looking at me there. Uh, I was the, 39th wing PG at Egg at the time. We had about 15 units under us. And I, Colonel Philip Prince was my commander. And Colonel Philip Prince and I went round and round and round about parachute tactics because he was really extremely worried about special ops taking over rescue. And uh, he wouldn't let my PJs participate in a lot of exercises. Well, I got my orders for headquarters when I made chief and he got his orders for headquarters to become rescue commander. We got there about the same week and he called me into his office and said, okay, Dave, you're chief of pararescue now. I'm going to let you do anything you want to with pararescue except two things. You will not free fall parachute jump and you will not let them get combat training. Well, I said, yes, sir. Walked out and thought about that. And uh, those are two of my main objectives besides getting rescue, uh, pararescue officers, the three things. And he just shot down two of them. But uh, as far as uh, parachutes go, we had three fatalities in a row with round shoots, one involving red flag where a PJ from the, the a guard unit uh, made a night jump and collided head first with a rock and killed him instantly. Had another incident uh, where PJ drowned on a jump mission off of California. That's Jones. And had an another incident where another PJ was killed. And I felt that square parachutes would have saved all three of them. And I got in with a safety office at headquarters rescue. And this time it was 23rd Air Force. No, it was rescue. And uh, in conjunction with the safety officer, we come up with a program to go to square parachutes as a safety. This Captain Lutz that I tried to make a PG officer was helping me on the program. And we talked General Prince into letting us get free fall training to convert the square parachutes as a safety measure. But we didn't have any way of doing it. I tried the Army, and the Army wouldn't let us go to Hale School because they didn't have the time or resources to handle a bunch of Air Force guys. So uh, the guys at uh, Kirtland contacted the Air Force Academy we had an XP uh, combat controller running the free fall program there, the airmanship program, Jones. And Jones agreed to take about 10 of our senior pararescue men and make us free fall qualified under the academy. And that gave us our free fall qualification for the Air Force. And we used those guys to be our initial cadre for the program that we set up to train all pararescue men in uh, free fall halo jumping. And uh, that's how we got started on the square parachutes. And later on, the mission started going with it. Had another problem, we didn't have any parachutes. And uh, every fiscal year, there was a bunch of fallout money. And I got a call one day from the chief budget officer at MAC, Betty. I got in with her right away. 
And she said, Dave, I got a million dollars for your parachutes if you want it. So we bought a million dollars worth of uh, MTS X's for the entire career field at one time. That's kind of got us started. But, you know, it's pretty good with our uh, accelerated freefall program run by Colonel Don Towner. Uh, we qualified the whole periscope career field with only three guys dropping out. Hale school losses would have probably been 10%. I don't know. But I think the guys did real good with our program. And the guard and reserve set up their own program schools because we had time for them right at the time. And they did pretty good too with their programs. It got us all qualified. And the combat training, uh, where we got that going was at, through uh, Kirtland at the Pararescue School. I started on that with the gun ranges and stuff and combat tactics. We couldn't do it at the headquarters level, but the school did it. And that got us started a little bit. We still didn't have the mission going for it because our main mission at the time was hundreds of bombers going to Russia with no way back. And the concept was to get PJ teams in, six-man teams, to drop in at the pre-range site to pick up survivors, move them to a pre-pickup location and come back. I mean, those are concepts that were getting thrown around. Of course, the Gulf Wars and Afghanistan changed all those theories and what PJs became. Mm-hmm. And then the Pararescue officers, uh, that was a slow program, but I did get Colonel Don Towner, a physiologist, running our freefall program. And uh, Colonel uh, Beeling, Ed Beeling, was another physiologist, but he was the real PJ. He went through PJ training as a major captain and uh, got out. Pararescue became a physiologist. And then we hired him back. And he started our first uh, officer. He kind of got the groundwork laid for starting the pararescue officer program and he became our first squadron commander down at england okay so for the record you started square parachutes you started pju and what else did you start? and you started cross officer program i i i didn't start them all but i had a hand in getting them going good yeah that's awesome that's all paved the way yeah we appreciate it dave um and especially us this being our first podcast um, we're really happy that you were able to give us this time. Yeah. Well, I'm glad my daughter is here to help me. I'm pretty ignorant about technical stuff. Oh, I mean, right now I'm looking at it. I can see part of your faces, but I got a big thing across the middle of my screen saying, this means this means being recorded and I can't get rid of it. So uh, I got the whole middle of my screen blocked, but I can see part here. of you guys on each yeah. side. But, but yeah, I appreciate so much you guys t- wanting to do this. I mean, I just can't believe anybody's willing to take the time to go back in some of this history. There's a lot of history. I mean, the book Rescue. Oh, boy. Never mind. <laughs> I got wrapped up in the courts. Uh-oh. Are you there? Yeah, yeah we're, we're still here. Okay, the book Rescue. Way back by Elliot Arnold. has got all kinds of old PJ stories in it. Way back in the 50s and uh there's you know the history that's the history of paris 50 year history whatever it is a pair rescue uh there's a lot of stories about the old timers but a lot of it's not recorded either well that's definitely our goal with this uh, so yeah it, it was really easy to talk to you and kind of uh calmed all the, all the nerves with uh you know starting this podcast and nerves you guys <laughs> The nerves are in this book, in this direction, <laughs> not you guys. <laughs> you didn't tell it at all. Yeah. 